Welcome to the SW Brokerage, your partners in finance podcast. My name is Barry Wilkinson, the director and founder. Today, I'm interviewing Dave Shillington, former NRL star, Kangaroos and Queensland's Maroons. Dave is now Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Wellbeing Code. We're very fortunate to have him here today. Dave, welcome. Thanks for having me, Barry. Yeah, very good. Thanks. Uh, excited to have a chat today. 215 games for the in the NRL with the Sydney Roosters, Canberra and the Gold Coast Titans. Eight games for Queensland and 14 games for Australia. That's a big pedigree, mate. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was really fortunate to have a, um, a pretty long career and um, reached some good heights there, playing for the Mighty Maroons and yeah. for Australia. I, I retired a few years ago now and selfishly I thought I was retiring early, I guess, and I was a bit hard done by at the time. I was, I was too injured and just couldn't keep going. Uh, but then, uh, you know, about a year or two after retiring, I went, oh, hang on a sec. I had a really long career, very fortunate, yeah. and I really appreciate it now. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm 37 now, Cameron Smith's age, and he's still playing. Still so he makes around. me look like a little wussy <laughs> bailing out at 34. But um, he's a pretty special player. So you were a big man running through the, you know, he probably doesn't get hit as, what, as much as you, you would have, would he? Nah, he's got a um, remarkable ability. Uh, to preserve his body, I guess, yeah, yeah. and not in any sort of way that is a detriment to his career or anything or his team. His skills, his uh, skill set is directing the team, um, doing some classic kicks, uh, motivating that team, keeping them together. So um, he, he plays to that strength. He's not out there to to fold someone in half when he tackles them. So, um, yeah, he, he's good at what he does. Yeah, cool, man. Mm. Before we get into it, eight games for Queensland. Did you lose any of those games? Yeah, we, we lost one or two, never a series. Uh, so sorry if there's any New South Wales fans um, in your <laughs> audience, but uh, it was a tough spell for New South Wales during that time. Uh, I got to play alongside you know, Darren Lockyer, Cameron Smith, Jonathan Thurston, Billy Slatter. There's like future immortals and the team was phenomenal mm. uh, and the poor old Blues just couldn't um, string two wins together in a series, unfortunately. And they had some talent too, of course, yeah. Fantastic talent. Um yeah, it's exciting. Uh, I, I, you'd like to see the Maroons win all the time, of course, but it's exciting to have Freddie in there as yeah. a Blues coach because uh, he's instilled a different sort of belief and passion in those guys, you know, putting that jersey first and getting them to play together uh, for the whole state, not just, you know, a bunch of individuals trying to play Origin. And that's been the key, I think, to the Blues turning it around and it's made Origin uh, much more exciting. It has, yeah, yeah, it certainly has. Mate, mm. one more question from me. About the Queensland, who's the funniest guy in the Queensland team that you've played with? Oh, it's got to be Sam Thido. He's just on all the time with little one-liners and quick quick remark. He's a quick thinker, yeah, very yeah. witty, and nobody, I guess, escapes his wit, I guess. The so, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it's uh, Wayne Bennett, Mel Meninga, Darren Lockyer, uh, it doesn't matter who you are, you could be subject to some of his one-liners, but it's all, it's all lighthearted and fun. Oh, good, mate. Do you still catch up? Do you still keep in contact? Do you guys all yeah, a little have bit, quite a yeah, close, close bond? Yeah, everyone sort of has their own lives, of course, now. But you do seem to bump into each other pretty regularly, I guess. So it's nice to catch up and and reminisce. We, we had a Legends of League game actually just the other day in, in Central Queensland. Okay, so it was um, Big Petro and uh, Benny Hannett and um, Ash Harrison, Casey McGuire, a few old Queenslanders. There's the team. body. Uh, yeah, so I actually coached, um, oh, right. but um, and and the boys played. But I think I'll play next time because um, I was just sort of scoping it this time to see if I'd handle it, which which would be fine. <laughs> the majority of people that are retired, regardless of the sport, miss the camaraderie in the dressing sheds. Yeah. They don't miss the game as such, but it's more the camaraderie, yeah? Yeah. The and banter. It, yeah, and the excitement of it yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. 
training all week and being a part of the team and going out there to, to do your best. Uh, you know, obviously intensity isn't the same these days, but um, you still want to test yourself and compete a bit and uh, whether it's um, a skillful pass or it's breaking a tackle. Like, so there's all different ways you can compete and test yourself. That never leaves uh, you, right? No, that's right. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're all uh, compulsively uh, competitive and yeah. that spills out over into my home life sometimes. My wife doesn't like that, but um, it, it is a character trait that um, that we all have. Yeah, I can imagine, mm. mate. I can imagine, mate. Well, look, if I, I, I wouldn't mind getting into uh, probably, you know, one of the reasons why you're here. And, and again, thank you very much for giving me your time. Um, I'm very privileged for that, mate. You started your career in 2005 and finished in 2016. You've had some big highs in your playing career, but I want to cover some of the lows of your career in yeah. terms of mentally, if that's cool, because from a finance sense, and we'll get into it and how that obviously played out mm. in your financial background and, and obviously the, the path that you had. The defining kind of moment or if it was a moment because you've mentioned in your website that you reached out to a counsellor. Yep. Mate, yep. when was that? Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to share those stories. I, I love talking about mental health and uh, overcoming setbacks uh, or even just performing your best. So it's, it's not always about the negative things when we talk about mental health. But, um, you know, in my early years uh, playing in the NRL, I did struggle with those ups and downs, the constant scrutiny, uh, and to sort of paint the picture for you of scrutiny, uh, most of us go to work and we might have weekly check-ins with our boss or a quarterly review or things like that. Uh, as an NRL player, um, every single day, <laughs> your um, your field sessions, uh, as the teamwork, it's all filmed. So if you're sort of bludging out the back or knock it on or you're doing anything, it's all caught on camera. And at the end of the day, uh, you do a review uh, with the head coach, with a middle unit coach, uh, and then sometimes with the individual positional coaches like that. So you have three different reviews at the end of the day usually, uh, and then come game time, uh, obviously the game is um, critiqued uh, by the commentators, uh, which we all watch the game obviously after we played. Um, once again, those three different coaches and those three different units within the team, the media, like the newspapers, the radios, uh, friends and family, um, sometimes they're the worst. <laughs> uh, but then your own self-critiquing too. So, man, it's just um, this constant sort of pressure and um, evaluating and, and, and it's natural for most humans, I think, to be really hard on themselves. Mm, mm. We might all think of people that are really complimentary to themselves <laughs> sometimes, but the, the majority of us are really hard on ourselves and that was definitely me. So uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was sort of becoming a bit withdrawn from my team and you know, just stretching by myself while the boys would be kicking the footy around at training. And when they went for a coffee, I would just politely decline and that sort of thing. And not on purpose, but I'd probably just, that that's a little personality trait of mine is that when I'm a bit stressed or, or whatever, I, I go a bit quiet. Go back in yeah, yeah, I do. And I'm a bit standoffish and quiet. And did you realize that back then? Like, were you consciously aware of, no, of that rule? How no. old were you, mate? I was only when young. I was only about 23, I think, at the time. So is that when you? So, is that the age you broke into yeah, the NRL? Yeah, it was a year or two after um, debuting in the NRL. You know, the, the first year is like a bit of a honeymoon period. You're just pumped. Nobody knows who you are and you can sort of surprise up the opposition and there's no pressure on you to perform because you're only new. But then after a while, these sort of expectations start growing and say, well, look, you played... 20, 40, 50 games now, you need to start you know, performing every week uh, consistently and think about rep footy, I guess. I, I definitely needed a bit more support than I, I was getting and, and being welcomed to at the time. And, and my coach at the time, um, who was Brad Fittler, and he's, he was a really famous person uh, in his own right, 
highly regarded by me and everyone around him. But not only that, um, you know, he was my coach, I guess, expected me to be a high performer. So it was very, very uncomfortable and strange when I guess having a conversation with him about seeking support. And, and he, he still was just checking on me and, um, and everyone calls me Shiller. And he's like, Shiller, how's things going, mate? Is, is, um, is everything okay? You, you're handling the ups and downs of, of the NRL all right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, good as gold, mate. Yeah, and a bit sort of, Bit nervous or uncomfortable about the question, I guess. And um, but he really disarmed me. He said, "That's okay if you're not. Like, have you thought about seeing a counselor?" And I was like, "A counselor? I'm What's a, that? Six foot five, hundred and fifteen kilo yeah. front row, playing for you, I'm yeah, yeah. trying to run over people, make a living. Um, I don't need to talk about my emotions. Thank you very much. I'll be right." Because was it a big thing back in the NRL? I know it's quite predominant nowadays. Yeah. But was it a big thing back then? Not no, really. no. You heard about the odd sports psych that would come in and do a bit of a motivational session, uh, and, and we did do that from time to time. But um, to actually get psychological support to to support you as a person and support your career, it was it was fairly unheard of and, and certainly not talked about. Uh, so there's that real stigma around it back then. This, we're talking 2007, 2008, you know. So, uh, but no, he said, no, why don't you see the guy I see? I was like, well, would you see a counselor? He goes, no, I'm fine. I don't have anything major going on, but I like to get things off my chest from time to time so they don't build up and become overwhelming. And you know, it's such a great strategy. And um, so I thought, if, you know, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. I'll mm. take that advice and guidance. And What a good guy. Um, well, that's yeah, great. Yeah. Oh, he's a great guy, Fred. He's, he helps a lot of people. He's very charismatic. Uh, very charismatic, yeah, very involved yeah. in the community, very selfless. Uh, so I went around the corner to to uh, Centennial Park and, and saw Angus, and he was um, he was a lovely man. He invited me into his apartment and sat on the couch as you do in those situations. What was your thought process going into that appointment? Just nervous and embarrassed, I guess. Did you wear a cap and a jumper because you didn't want to be seen? Kind of thing? No, <laughs> no, no, I wasn't. I didn't to that extent, but uh, but I, when I did sit on the couch and and he said, "Oh, how's things, Dave? You know, how's life?" I was like, yeah, fantastic, really good. <laughs> just, just we get that a bit. Just defensive, apprehensive about one grown man talking to another about, um, you know, struggling, I guess. And uh, but yeah, he had a way. He's trained to have these conversations, as you say. He hears that stuff all the time, and and he got me loosening up a bit, got me talking, he got me talking a bit more and a bit more. <laughs> and uh, after about an hour, he was tapping on his watch, going, Dave. Time to go. Time to go, mate. I got other people to see, and I hadn't taken a breath. So yeah. uh, I was like, "Wait, wait, Angus, I got more to say," because <laughs> it felt so good getting things off my chest that uh, I was turning over my head with no real solutions. And I think we all do that. I still do it today. But by talking it out, uh, all the words sort of fell into place. I, I think you know, it's. Um, I don't know if everyone else had that experience. That. Angus didn't have to give me coping strategies, solutions. Didn't have to go. Oh well, Dave, this is how you live your life. I kind of thought it was going to be like that. He didn't have to do that. Um, he just had to make me feel um, warm, comfortable, relaxed, and and speak freely. So um, yeah, there's a great lesson in that in uh, in being a good listener for one, uh, being a good mate, good dad, um, good husband, being a good listener. It's also good just to get things off your chest. If you, you, know, you are a bit overwhelmed from time to time, you do feel better. Even if the person doesn't offer advice, you feel better just getting just it off listening. your chest. And what I was just talking about before we, we went live here is um, is it can be really used as a performance tool as well. It's not just about sort of struggling and getting a bit of help. And when we want to perform and feel our best, um, I know I walked out of that session and I just felt lighter on my feet, uh, clearer in my head. And um, athletically, 
career-wise, I guess, it was one of the best things they ever did. You know, next year, I wanted to play for the Maroons and for Australia, and wow. and I directly link, you know, clearing my head, getting some strategies um, to handle those ups and downs to the performance and the um, the heights, I guess, I got to reach with my career. How, how often do you go back and see Angus? No, I only saw him a handful of times at the time. You know, I wasn't going through anything major or crazy. I just, I just needed. So life extra. was life was good. You were earning good money. Good. Yeah. You were living in Sydney. How long yeah. were you in Sydney for on your own? Uh, so I moved down as a 17, 18-year-old and so I was probably in Sydney for about five years by myself by then and those things obviously affect you. I was, I, um, I came from a really close uh, family, like four boys in my family, um, very tight-knit. Uh, we supported and relied on each other a lot. So being away from them um, was definitely tough. Mm. But but as I say, you look, I, I wasn't down and out. I just needed a bit extra support and, and I like sort of clarifying that too because it is good to get support when you're still going okay, when you're not down and out, obviously when you're down and out, yeah, get support. <laughs> but um, it can help you. It's, it's it, If you get in front of things, it's much better. Did you find that you started to mingle with your teammates a little bit more then after that? Yeah, so yeah. inclusive? Yeah. So a lot of it for me as well was being, um, being comfortable in my own skin where, you know, you're in a team of high performers and you need to be a high performer yourself uh, and you need to be accepted by them as well and, and accept them and, and that's that's what heaps of people go through in all other areas of life, let alone an elite sporting team. Particularly so, social media now, and I know we'll talk about that later on. Yeah, yeah. So um, that really shaped me for later in my career when I was a leader within sporting teams that um, some of the teams I played in, uh, like those in the Maroons teams during those successful eras, uh, you know, I had a bit of that imposter syndrome, I guess, not being comfortable or confident that I was I should be selected in these teams. Like, What I was walk- that? Well, I walked into these Maroons teams. They'd already won uh, three or four series in a row. Uh, that was a four series in a row, actually. I, I, I was it was my first year. Uh, and there's you know, Cameron Smiths and Darren Lockyers and JTs and Slaters, like just future immortals there. And, and then there was Dave Shillington who played a handful of games for the Roosters and now the Raiders. So obviously, yeah, I, I played some good games for the Maroons and built my confidence, found my place in that team. But they were one of the best teams to play for because even though there were so many big names, big personalities like that, they all knew that if we were going to beat the Blues, every one of us in the 17 had to play our best. We had to perform our individual duties and support each other. It was never about getting Slater the ball, JT the ball or anything like that. It was all about what what do I need to do for this team so we win. Uh, and so everyone had equal importance, which might be surprising, I guess, to people and think, oh, it was always about Smithy or something. It was never like that. So It was collectively um, as a team. Yeah. So people yeah. that don't play sport and don't have that competitive edge but still feel the same way you did because mm. we're all, all equally as important regardless of what yeah. you've done yep. with the mental health issue, would you say, would you suggest that they need to reach out, talk to their mates, catch up, on a regular basis, you know, yep. like from a fitness perspective yep. and not just sitting at a pub and, and having a few beers. That's right, yeah. You really need Not that to, there's anything wrong with that. No, nah, yeah, on the occasion for sure. <laughs> yeah. You do need to be proactive with it. If you're going to change, whether that's just surviving or, or if it's thriving, you need to be proactive with your well-being. And that might be getting out and socialising when your instinct is to be a bit more withdrawn and stick to yourself. Uh, it might be getting out, exercising first thing in the morning. You have to uh, spend energy to get energy. It's really counterintuitive to a lot of people. 
Uh, like I went for a big run this morning. I'm not a fitness fanatic or anything these days. I just do it for, for my mental health really. But I went for a big run this morning. I didn't really feel like I want to woke up when I got back, but I felt like a million dollars. And that's counterintuitive to people. They think, oh, wouldn't you be exhausted from that big run? But it, it actually sounds just, exhausting. <laughs> it actually just <laughs> energizes you. Um, so that's me being trying, trying to be proactive. Yeah. Um, there's other things that we do as a family uh, around gratitude and mindfulness and things like that, really simple things. Why? That's a good point. I'll stop you there. That's a great point, like the gratitude. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Millennial Samurai. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you guys no. have read it, but I would highly recommend that you do. Yep. Uh, and it talks a lot about gratitude. Mm-hmm. What do you do with your family? Yep. You know, this actually stems back. I didn't know my, my mum was a genius for <laughs> when I was a kid, but uh, when we were young, having four boys, you know, his meal time was like feeding at the zoo was just every man for himself. Mum, she couldn't spend you know, hours in the kitchen. Uh, refine the quality of meals, even though they tasted good, it was about quantity and speed to the table. So, <laughs> so that was one, I guess, part of, of dinner time. But the second part where mum was was really genius and, and reflecting on it now, I understand what she was doing. She really valued that time for us to spend together because we all had such busy lives. And a lot of people today, a lot of your listeners might have really busy lives and go, oh, I can't kind of dinner with a family or I want to watch TV or I'm just going to eat on the go or something like that. But mum made sure we all spent that time together so we could we could bond, um, ask each other about our days uh, and just yeah, learn about each other, know, be connected. Uh, so I think that's a little bit of a lost art sometimes. Mm. And now that I've got a couple of kids myself, uh, we really value that as a family as well. What are some of the values that your mum instilled and your dad? Yeah. From, from a monetary sense, like did you come from an affluent kind of background? Did your mum and dad, what did they do for a living? Yeah. What are the values that your mum and dad instilled in you that yeah. you still use now for your kids? Yeah, I guess that being connected, doing those things proactively to be connected as a family like we did at dinner time. Another big thing was uh, about applying ourselves the best we could that at the time we didn't probably understand. But now as we're older and all my brothers are quite successful in their, in their own right, we reflect on that as that what, what they talk to us about as early teenagers instilled a sense of, of just doing our best at everything, really. Would you get pocket money? No, not really. So we Did you work? probably describe as, as yeah, a standard middle-class family. Mum and dad had a great work ethic about them. So dad was in the fireys all his career and mum was in Queensland Police Service uh, for 30-odd years as well. She was a bit of a leader, actually, back in the day. Mum, I always tell people uh, she was in the first intake of female police officers in Queensland kidding. back wow. in the day. So she's probably a bit of a feminist at heart, which is hilarious <laughs> think, thinking she lived with five men you know, all yeah, her life. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they, they just really – they taught us to make the most of opportunities, uh, be happy with what we got and, and stay connected with each other. Yeah, good on you. Mm. So if I go back a step when you were playing football, you were earning some good cash, and I'm not asking you to tell me what you were earning, far from that – if you look at it, what were you doing with your money? Mm. Were you kind of wasting it? Were you buying things? Were you trying to be, you know, like buying materialistic items, mm. that that stuff? Yeah. I think a little bit of both actually. And uh, along the way, as a, as a contracted professional sports person, especially in rugby league, AFL, union, those sports that can pay you a bit of money, you do lose a bit of a sense of the value of money along the way. 
And uh, not to sound like we were sport brats or anything like that, but you get paid really well, especially from a young age. Some of the guys, like the minimum wage, I think is about $100,000 these days. It wasn't like that when I was playing, but I, I was very fortunate to get paid hundreds of thousands a year when I, when I played and I invested some of that money. I blew some of it as well, like as you do. Uh, yeah, bought a nice car when I was young, things like that. So I, I definitely was not perfect with it, but thankfully... Getting paid a bit more also sparked my interest of what I could do with that money. And I, I did a little bit of study uh, in finance, did a little diploma of um, finance. Through Whilst Cap- you were playing rugby league? Yeah, through um, Caplan. I think oh, a lot yeah, of people yeah, Plan, do those. Yeah. Yep, yep. Who gave you that advice? Well, my two, two uh, my younger brother and one of my older brothers, uh, they're big in finance. They love it. They've done their engineering and master's and um, master's business and those sorts of things. Obviously, your mum and dad and your friends go, oh, you got to invest your money, you got to invest your money. And, and sometimes that's a bit like water off a duck's back. But when I did the study and sort of realized the potential of what you could do with your money to grow that money and uh, let alone just save, that was probably a big determining factor of, of investing and different things. So uh, I, I didn't always win with investing. Like I, I bought shares at different times. Who and gave I, you that advice or did you just buy him? My older brother, Johnny, he loves shares uh, and he's done well out of it over the years, um, as have the other brothers since, I guess. But, but, but you lost a bit. He, he loves shares. Johnny. And I, I always joke around saying if if you want to like um, short a stock or something, just get me to buy some of those <laughs> and um, it'll go down yeah. like that next day. You still let so. Johnny know that to, to this day. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening, so, Johnny, you uh, <laughs> a few beers. Well, it's funny because I don't um, – I'm not a punter. Like if, if – a gambler. The gambler, yeah. So if I went to the pub with my mates to watch the footy and they want to um, put on a bet, I'll, I'll do it with them. But I would never like sit on my phone on a weekend or anything and watch the races or anything like that. Uh, and one of the main reasons why is because I'm actually terrible at it. <laughs> if I had 10 bets on oh, a weekend, yeah. uh, I'd lose nine of them. So it's not a good um, well, you think pastime. About it, you know, you're working so hard to make it. Yeah. I was never brought up in a gambling family, but yeah. I've got WhatsApp groups like you and yeah. – Mate, the amount of people that yep. are into gambling, yep. it's ridiculous. I know one question a lot of people will want me to ask from this podcast because you mentioned it. Mm. You blew money. Yeah. I'm a football fan fanatic mm. in terms of the round game, mate, not your game, yeah. unfortunately. But yep. it's still appreciated. I'll go back to the Georgie Best, the Paul Gascoins, yep. you know, elite sportsman Maradona who passed last year. Mm. Plenty of, you know, world footballers like Ronaldo that have lost money. But yet the thing is, though, that they had ridiculous amounts of money but lost it. What did you blow mm. it on? Oh, no, I think just living an extravagant lifestyle more than you had to. When I say blow it, I, I, I'm, I'm probably being a bit critical and I could have done more with it, I guess. So, like, we, we've got a nice house um, over the south side there in Camp Hill and nice cars and kids go to nice school. Like, we, we, we do well, but... Um, but there was definitely lost opportunity there and by having too much of an extravagant lifestyle. And yeah. that's what I sort of said at the start is that you lose that sense of value and, and you go out and spend a couple hundred bucks for dinner or book a weekend away or go on holidays. And some off-seasons you'd, you'd spend tens of thousands of dollars sometimes on holidays, uh, but you're earning hundreds of thousands of dollars and you think, oh, that's fine, that's justified. Uh, but then when you finish up, you're like, well, I probably could have been a bit more conservative there. Did you have structure around your finances? Not a lot. You know, um, one probably poor character trait of mine when I was younger, and that um, is reflective in the story I was saying about getting a counsellor, was um, always the need to want to do things myself uh, and Mm. not accepting advice, um, which is crazy now in hindsight. So, you know, for you in your field, being a financial um, advisor, 
I don't know everything about finance. I don't know half of what you know, a quarter of what you know. So it makes sense for me to come and see you for advice and listen to you too, <laughs> not just come and see you and go, nah, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, but that was me back in the day. Uh, I probably wouldn't accept advice and help enough about things I didn't know about and just wanted to be more independent and, and self-sufficient, I guess. And so when it came to finance, I definitely could have done it better. And I kind of do wish I'd sort of handed over that to someone trustworthy back in the day. But you must be related to my wife because <laughs> she's similar trait. But that's cool. I'll tell you the positive to that, it's not really a negative. So from a finance perspective, it's like, okay, well, that's Dave's trait. You've mm. got to let Dave actually mm. understand that. However, uh, I always use the term, your, your ego is not your amigo. Mm. But if you come to that realisation of going, hold on, the conscious awareness is going, I'm no good at this, but you've still got to let you go and do your thing. Yeah. But then you go, hold on, what should I have done? Yeah, yeah. And it's never too late. But I think the perception out there with a lot of people is that the more money you make, the less problems you'll have. Mm. It's quite the contrary. Mm. It's not the amount of money you earn, it's what you do with it that yep. counts, right? Yeah. So I've seen some people on some ridiculous amounts of money but yet have got nothing to show for it. Mm. But going back a step, when you mentioned blowing it uh, or no structure, at what stage in your career when you were earning more money, if you go back a step, when someone either taps you on the shoulder and go, Dave, you need a manager or we need to start doing this with your money. Mm. At what stage of your career did that happen? Yeah, probably late in my career when I got married and had kids because uh, it became less about me and more about what I was going to provide for my, for my family. So... I'm sure that's a normal thing for for a lot of people, but then I became more intent on um, you know, investing in real estate and, uh, and paying down debt uh, to set myself up for life after football, uh, because it, it's a really unique position athletes are in where they'll be the top of their game for t- five, ten, fifteen years and fantastic money comparatively, and all of a sudden just stops. <laughs> so. Um, a trap that a lot of players fall into. And thankfully, I had a bit of vision, so it didn't affect me in the same way. But a player will be on four or $500,000 a year, can afford to buy, say, a million-dollar house or a $1.5 million house. Their repayments are $1,000 a week and, and they make the normal repayments for a couple of years, pay off twenty grand, I guess, of the house, of the principal, uh, and still owe $890,000 uh, when they retire. And then they get a normal job, so to speak, and they're getting paid sixty thousand a year based on their skill set, or maybe seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year, and a thousand dollars a week in repayments is a huge amount of money for them. And they're mm. like, "Holy hell, how am I going to keep what am up I with do this?" Here? Yeah, and then they have to sell the house, potentially make a loss on it. They've already paid their stamp duty and things like that that they can't claim or whatever. And uh, and they, and they do fall into that trap. I know a lot of um, athletes of all different codes that have been through that and just don't don't understand the realities of retirement of how hard it is to earn a dollar outside of playing sport. Did your perception of money changed when you stopped? Absolutely. So, yeah, so in 2017 when I retired, I went from earning um, hundreds of thousands a year down to my first job of 65,000 a year. (laughs) So, um, and as I I said earlier, when I was earning a heap of money and I was living in Canberra too, uh, I used to try and justify things to say, oh, well, I'm living in Canberra. It's it's holiday time. I'm going to go enjoy yeah. myself yeah. if I um, have to, in inverted commas, um, live in Canberra during the winter and so yeah. on. So let's just live life. And so, yeah, we used to spend a fortune on holidays, um, spend no expense. And then when I retired, I got my 65 grand a year job. We um, we went away to North Stratty just for the weekend, booked like three nights and a 
In a tent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I didn't actually. I kind of paid like 1200 bucks for this house and – for how, long, how many days? For three nights, you know. Right. So it was, it was a good house, and we, we um, got the kids and everything. And and then after I paid that, I went, man, that's like more than a week's salary for me. What have I done here? And I just had all this remorse about booking it, and I went and just it hit me how much life's changed to have every month your bank account getting refilled um, generously to going. I'm going to have to really roll up my sleeves and work hard now in retirement to rebuild my salary and, and I have to really hard to rethink my spending as well. Did you get much guidance in your career by other players that would have gone, hey, Dave, you should be doing this with the money? A, a little bit, a little bit. but um, And things have changed a little bit like this last sort of five years, I guess. There's a bit more emphasis on giving players some more education skills, awareness um, to everything we've been talking about. Uh, but back in the day, um, it, was, it wasn't like that. It, at all, and before my time, you know, it would have been oh, worse. God, yeah. But importantly, as well, what we sort of talked about before is, yeah, some of those players might have had an idea, but they weren't financial experts by any stretch. So, um, I, w- I would have been better off, uh, you know, seeing a financial advisor and one that I trusted, one that was smart and could have guided me through utilizing that great money we we're earning, uh, and then setting myself up for retirement. So, no, and, and not that we're uh, I handled it poorly, but there was. I would have liked to have handled it better. Talk about the trust part. Oh, it's it's enormous. I think um, given yeah. your stature then, mm. sorry, given your stature then, you would have had a lot of people admiring your game and admiring your career. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've had a dollar for every time somebody um, wanted to sort of access sports people and um, manage their funds and things like that. I, I, I'd be a rich person actually, <laughs> but uh, but the trust is a big thing with with money and. It's funny because I work in mental health uh, and mental health and finance, trust, it's mm. all, yeah, it's all really closely, intimately related there. And there's probably similar like stigmas around it too where finance can just feel overwhelming and so complicated for people just like mental health can be. But a lot of it's linked back to the mental health too, right? That's right. That's right. So um, it can be cause anxiety and depression mm. and just feel complicated. And so my passion with mental health is uncomplicate mental health and just say, hey, if you need a bit of support, you do. It's nothing wrong with that and it's really helpful. But also you need to be proactive. You need to support each other and so on. And so I think the same needs to be done um, with finance to say, hey, this causes a lot of anxiety. It doesn't need to be. Let's just get a savings plan going. Let's make sure your interest rates are sharp uh, and give you confidence and clarity. And in turn, that's better for your mental health too. So it's it's funny the parallels around stigma and trust and clarity and, and how they're sort of linked there. How did you go with the patience I find from a finance perspective is something that people kind of overlook Yeah, because you need some type of goals. I mean, being a sportsman and, and I resonate with goals. How, how did you find with being patient? How did the transaction, or the, sorry, transformation, I should say, from having it in your account to the point of going, hold on, Annette, I need to reset here and be patient in the process? Yeah, that's a big thing. Um, we, especially in today's age, we um, instant gratification, I guess, sorry to say buzzwords, but um, we can have everything right now if we want it. And so we want results and we want outcomes of, of our efforts. And we're not used to like sacrificing and being patient and working hard to get things as much anymore. The people who can do that, they're the ones that are our high achievers now. Uh, so yeah, patience, patience is a big thing. Um, I think having a, a, a tied into patience is, is understanding the bigger picture of what's happening here. So you know, if I buy some shares today, 
Um, so when I was investing in shares, actually, uh, I would be, I'd have my um, ASX app thing on my phone and, and open it up every day, sometimes five times a day, and go, <laughs> it's gone up 0.1%. Yes. Oh, no, it's gone down 0.2%. No, I'm bailing out. And, uh, and I would ride that emotionally, you know, the roller coaster. But, um, but like my brothers who um, are you know, well educated in this space, yeah. yeah, they go, it's not about that, mate. Mm. You can build up your portfolio, get some dividends, reinvest. It's going to grow over time. They're blue chip. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but um, they went down 1% today. Yeah, but that's fine, Dave. <laughs> so, Be patient. Um, so not understanding, I guess, uh, enough. Um, it's, it's hard to, it, it was hard to be patient and not see the bigger picture. If, if, um, if you had a budget, Mm. Say if you did a budget back in the day, because mm. people talk to me about buying investment properties, having some shares, or I guide them to some financial experts, people that I trust, yeah, people that have that good intention to go, okay, well, this is my ethos. And like attracts like, I find at the same time. But one thing where I always start with people is their budget. Yep. Back in your career, I'm sure you've got a budget now being an mm. owner, which we'll talk about. Mm. But back then... Uh, did did you have just one bank account where money would go into? Did you have another bank account? Did you kind of spread the money around, hoping that it would kind of grow quicker? No, I, I didn't have a really strategic approach like that. And as I say, we sort of did take it for granted from time to time uh, that how much money you get paid and it would definitely be in your bank account each month like that. So uh, don't get me wrong, like we worked our bums off for our contracts and broke ourselves for mm-hmm. our careers to earn that money. So I don't want to come across as we were sports or anything, but um, but we did probably, uh, a lot of us did lose the value of money over time. Uh, so, um, but yeah, nowadays, yeah, definitely have a more strategic approach to it. But back then, uh, so... Uh, the, the salaries were so generous, you just took it as it came. And, and you know, we, I, I bought a few houses over time and there's always enough money to make repayments and pay it down. And um, yeah, it was it was great while it lasted. <laughs> so you, so you, the, the work that you do now, yep. you know, you're working with the well-being and the mental health. Do you talk to people about the patience game? Is that one of the things you try to reset people and go, okay, this is, you know, yeah, yeah. the way forward? Yeah, so we talk a lot about emotional skills and mental skills, uh, you know, when people focus on their health and well-being, um, traditionally, um, there's always been a focus on your physical health. So um, go to the gym, get fit, be able to run 10Ks, look lean and bench press however much. That's usually a, a mark, I guess, a benchmark of, of health and well-being, fitness. Uh, but see, we work on the mental side of the game. Uh, and that could be having the motivation to go to the gym or it could be knocking out of the park at the gym. So from a... Um, from we look at the performance arousal curve. Um, you know, people can be not motivated enough to be in that performance zone, or they might be too anxious and overmated, over overwhelmed um, to not perform their best. So we sort of work with that curve, so that people can learn to relax, self-regulate, and and feel their best, uh, perform their best. Um, if they're up that end, if they're sort of overcooked, but then people who are sort of don't have that motivation, that drive, that self-actualization. To, to perform and, and to do things, you know. So we work with both ends of the spectrum there. Is there an age bracket that you kind of go, okay, well, look, if you're at this certain age, I'm 44. Yep. Do you go, okay, well, mate, you should probably be aware of this stuff a little bit more. If you go back to younger 30s, you should probably be aware of that a little bit more. Mm. We, we probably don't break it into the age brackets, although the people we talk to will be in those age brackets and um, experiencing certain things. Like, so we'll be in schools uh, talking to the student athletes about how to manage uh, their 
their school life, home life, um, sporting life, how to manage the pressures and expectations on that. Yeah, one, one of my mates who's um, who's a head of sport for for a nice private school here in Brisbane. Uh, he was saying that they've got five counsellors there and they're booked out all, all week, all year, and it overflows into his office too with people just not handling those pressures and balance of school and work life, uh, home life and sport. Is that because of the expectation levels are now set through things like your social media? I, I think that's got a lot to do with it too. Uh, Technology has advanced so quickly uh, that our brains, I guess, haven't caught up yet. Mm. And we're forced to handle information, process information at a far younger age than we've ever done before. And so young kids, like even my kids who are five and seven, uh, sometimes they want to jump on YouTube and we've actually recently cancelled YouTube on them because uh, we'd leave them looking at... um, Things um, they shouldn't be. Bl- yeah, they, they look at like a Bluey video for a while and one of their favourite shows, but then we'll come back 10 minutes later and some random things popped up there and we're like, oh, gosh, we've got to cut this out. But, um, you know, kids are exposed to the internet and world news through social media mm-hmm. and, and whatnot that um, whether it's um, climate change or um, a mass murder somewhere or something like that, and uh, and they don't have those emotional skills to to take that in their stride and process it and get on with their lives often it, and it hits people really hard. But when uh, you and I were younger, the internet was just coming out. That's how old we are. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it used to take forever to load. If you wanted to read a news article, you'd press download and come back half an hour later and it was there. You'd buy the paper. Uh, yeah, buy the paper too. Have a look for the football results. Yeah, yeah, but. Um, yeah, but now obviously it's it's different. It's right at our fingertips. Uh, it's overwhelming, and we probably haven't learnt how to process that, particularly from a young age, but even for us older people as well. Oh, huge! Mm. So, mate, now as a business owner, obviously going back to the budgeting, looking mm. at things that you never probably would have gone. Hold on, a business owner has to do this. Yeah. What are two key or three key things that really stand out to you now that you look back on, going, "Geez, I really overlooked that from a finance perspective." Mm. I think um, the overwhelming thing would be return on investment Uh, and it's hard for us because we've got a real big social impact to what we're doing and the people who are doing it are part of the business. Like we've got 35 athletes that give up their time uh, to be a part of this. Uh, They get paid, of course, sorry. It's not a charity or anything, but um, these 35 athletes um, who want to support young people, they want to support executives and, and everyone in between, whether that's from a well-being performance or leadership perspective, we'd love to give out their time and our time for free and do things for ultra cheap so that everybody can see, sort of get Read access to it. Mm. Um, but we know that we need a return on investment uh, so that we can sustain having all those athletes involved, we can grow the business and then eventually get to more people as well. So... Um, yeah, we, we've got to balance out the return on investment with what we want to do socially. Uh, and so then when we spend money on different things, growing content and, and digital media and things like that, or when people ask us to quote them for different workshops and programs and so on, I want to quote super low all the time so that we can just go out and do it and, and it's there for everybody. But, um, yeah, we've got to be sustainable. And Plus, at the same time, you wouldn't be as probably impactful if you did that if you gave it away for nothing, then it wouldn't be worth so much of a value. Yeah, of the advice that you're giving, right? I, I think Does that, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important principle. So you pay. You've got to pay. Like, if you're going to, if someone wants to invest into, say, shares. Mm. Okay, you got your advice from your brother. Yep. Which you're fortunate. Some people don't have that. I talk to people about shares at the moment. 
they're like, you have to have a lot of money. Mm, you actually mm. don't. You just need to start with the dollar. Yep. yep. Um, but if you want good advice to go talk to a financial planner and accountant, yep. just go and actually seek it because there will be some type of return, right? That's right. Yep. And and pay them for the time, value their time because you appreciate that they know what they're doing. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really big thing. Uh, and I think that's highlighted as well. I, I think when you are charging for things, you don't have to charge through the roof or anything. It gives the person using that service, accessing that service, um, they place more value on and importance on it as well. Because I noticed during COVID, um, the government or, or different organisations, and not that it's a bad thing they did, but they they gave out so much, so many free courses, so mm. much free information, and I think it just went in one ear and out the other, or people just ignored it because forgot they lesson. didn't place a value on it mm. as well. But if you're paying for something, you're going to place more value on it. So. Um, yeah, we got to remember that then not to quote too low, get things away for free just to be competitive and fair. Yeah, good on you, mate. That's awesome. Uh, I always find one thing that's a burning desire when I speak to people, one thing is goals. Mm-hmm. We need to set clear goals, which yep. I'm sure you work on. Yep. But in all honesty, I really try to talk to people about you run your own race. Mm-hmm. Don't look at Dave or look at Barry in terms yep. of what they're doing. You just focus on you. Mm. Do you really encourage people when you're in that, you know, talking to them and go, why are you worrying about someone else yeah. and not you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's it's a great point you make and, and so many people struggle with that, uh, that – yeah, if your health and well-being is going to improve, it's about it's about you. You're the one that's going to do it. Uh, and I was saying earlier that um, off air that I'm a big advocate for accessing professional support, but uh, unfortunately there's a bit of a stigma around it that people think, oh, they need to have a severe mental illness and they're weak for doing it. Uh, but, um, yeah, as I said earlier, you, you clear your head and, and you can perform better and feel better and so on. Uh, but the other side of where what happens when people see a counsellor is they only see him once, and they come in and they dump all this information on a counselor and say, oh, mate, I'm struggling. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I feel this way. And 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 the counselor doesn't get a chance, I guess, to start working through solutions and coping strategies and so on. And, and the person leaves and they go, oh, I'm not going back there. I just embarrassed myself and they didn't even help me. Uh, so, yeah, you got to stick with things over time and give it, you know, two, three, six give sessions. It a process. Yeah, whatever you, you need. And that's part of that patience you, you touched on and, and respecting the process, mm. the the expert you're talking to. Because, you know, the, the instant gratification, you look at Afterpay, you look at I can click on something right now to come to my door and it's a gift. Yeah. You know, like there's a, there's a documentary on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it. Minimalist. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've read the book, actually. It is awesome. Mm. Um, It's got these two guys where they're talking about, obviously, you know, they had this perception came from a low socioeconomic kind of background where they thought that they had to have the job, they had to have the cash, uh, cash in the bank, they had to have the nice clothes to have that feel, Mm. that sense of, oh, I'm I'm actually accepted. Mm. Then they got rid of stuff. Yeah. And they actually feel happier. I'm not telling people to get rid of stuff, but Mm. um, it's, it's really interesting that it's just that constant, it's in your face, it's in yeah. social media, you should be yep. bu- buying this, mate. Your car after two years to three years, you should be trading it in. Like, mm. what? Yeah, yeah, it's all Why marketing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like, and it must be really difficult for a sportsman like in the NRL earning that 400, 500, mm. Mm. earning that cash and you go overseas, it's even more ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. With the whole minimalism thing, I'm a huge fan of it. Um, that can be applied on all different levels. Yeah, you can give away all your belongings and live a simple life, absolutely. Or 
It can also just be taking a break from time to time. And um, people, you can term that as mindfulness if you want, or you can just say, I'm taking a break. Uh, it's depending on how you, what's palatable for you. And actually, I was chatting to an old um, uh, Wallabies player. He plays for Reds now, James O'Connor. I was chatting to him yesterday. And, uh, and we, were, we were laughing that um, one of the little habits we both do is um, if we're gonna, if I'm gonna pick up the kids from school and we have to wait around for five, 10 minutes while the kids are coming out of class, I won't take my phone with me. And James is saying like, if he goes to a cafe or gets a coffee, he won't take his phone with him so that he's not one of those people, which, which everyone is, just scrolling through their feed or the news or Facebook. Wasting time. Um, or or being, being connected and engaged mm-hmm. and stimulated and processing things rather than having a five or 10 minute breather. Cause we've literally walked away from our laptop got in the car to listen to radio music or podcasts and um, then got to school and now we're back on our iPhone like that. When do we get time to reset and just relax? Because we've and, lost that, haven't we? Yeah, so that's that's the minimalist sort of spin I take is just to have a break from time to time. You're talking about the technology and how it's kind of grown and we as humans are trying to catch up. I think some of this as we're getting a little bit older, I look at my mates, 80% of I'd probably say 90% of them are not on social media but we still connect. mm and you turn your phone off now when you walk in. And like we're having this conversation, there is no phones on our table because I'm really engaged and mm. respected in what Dave's saying. Because yep. I think the biggest form of respect I can give you, Dave, is giving you my attention, attention and, yeah. and yep. you're really listening. Mm. But yet, you know, like we're, we're looking at that instant gratification that you've got to have that car, you've got to have that clothes and it's got to be so kind of stigmatised mm where every young adult is trying to keep up, particularly as a sports star, you're earning some good money. Yep. You know, like it, it, I just find it uh, its really, really crazy. But the younger people that I deal with, with from a finance sense, you know, mate, when I say to them, it can't happen now, I literally have taken their left leg away. <laughs> yeah. But it will happen. And, yeah. But them transitioning through to that, be patient. Yep. If you want to be somewhere, find out the person that's been there and just ask them, how did you get there? Absolutely. You know, it's just the simple things really, isn't it? The other thing with social media we've got to be mindful of is I guess sometimes being tricked into thinking we're we're connected with people and and we're connecting with people. And back in the day, you'd pick up the phone and and say, g'day, it's David here, is Simon there or something? And you called your mate and you have to talk to the parents and you talk to Simon and have a good yarn on the phone. Uh, if it's someone's birthday, you'll go and have dinner with them and have a chat about things, maybe throw a party. But too often, I think we just do a little simple message on Facebook or a text message or things like that, and we feel connected. But it's but just it simply not for help, thing. right? Yeah, I, I'm not on social media. I got off it two or three years ago, mm. and it was a, I was at Christmas. I thought, you know what, enough's enough. Mm. And I started reading about shares. I started mm. reading more about the conscious mind. And yep. There's some really weird things going up in my brain. I can tell you that much, dude. <laughs> yes. Um, if you That's were for another podcast. Into, yeah, <laughs> ADHD, OCDs, mate, whatever you want. Um, but it was awesome because it was like so much more out there. Mm. Then, then you, I know we're talking about social media, but from a finance perspective, you know, like I look at, say, people go, you're talking about interest rates before. People are like, well, you're on a cheaper interest rate. Why am I not? Mm. But I always kind of get people to go back to the reset button and go, what's your budget? Yep. You should be miles ahead of Dave. Yep. Even if Dave was on 400, 500 in the NRL, I've mm. got people on 200 or $150,000, $50,000 doing better than you. Yeah. And yep. it's the values that they're instilled into them when they were younger to where they are now. And you talk about your work ethic with your family, that would still be entrenched in your DNA now Mm. and you go back to your football days. That's probably why you were so – well, it was why you were so successful. Mm, Absolutely. But yet 
you weren't, you know, you weren't living through something else like a platform of going, oh, mate, you can see me kicking a football or you can see me sitting on a beach. Things are good, Mm, but mm. things aren't, right? That's right, yeah. I'm really thankful in a way, I guess, in hindsight that uh, Facebook and all those um, different platforms only came out later in my career, so um, I didn't have a... I didn't have the opportunity, I guess, to waste my time in there. <laughs> didn't feel me like Todd Carney. No, but, uh, that's right. <laughs> so, mate, can we just touch on, because I know that we're running out of time, can I just touch on why, like, the wellbeing code? Because that's mm. why I've got you here. You're the CEO, you're the founder. Mate, what's the driving force behind that? Because, mate, kudos mm. to you, by the way, because mm. a lot of people wouldn't have done that, that with your illustrious career. Yeah. Mate, what's it about and how did it come about? I'm super passionate about it and and super passionate about mental health itself. Um, But as we said earlier, sometimes people hear mental health and they think mental illness, right? But we all have mental health. Um, Sometimes we have good days and bad days. We all have mental skills, I guess, that motivate us, help us to focus, to switch off, to communicate with other people. Uh, We know that um, athletes, uh, when they perform at elite level, um, they're remarkably resilient. They've had so many injuries, so much handle, so much pressure, so many setbacks. Uh, they might have had good coaches, bad coaches, good teammates, bad teammates, and so on. But they've managed to push forward, to bounce back from things, uh, to achieve what they've, they've achieved. And then from a leadership point of view, some of them have some phenomenal leadership skills. They're sure of what they need to do. They can lead teams. They can motivate others. They can handle conflict. But that resilience and that leadership that was learned over time. They weren't born a leader. They weren't born resilient. Um, they did different things in their life, mentally and physically, that made them ultra resilient, made them fantastic leaders. So my business really is capturing those athletes and their stories who tell the story so well. It's, it, it's, it's entertaining. It's funny, but, but meaningful. And we talk to schools, corporates, junior sporting clubs, um, using those stories, I guess, to to one normalize conversations. If you're struggling, that that's okay. Everyone struggles from time to time, so we really want to destigmatize mental health difficulties. But then, from a performance point of view, say, look, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a high performer, these are the emotional skills you need to strengthen. These are the mental skills you need to train, so you can be more confident, sure of yourself, and a better communicator to lead others. We have a team of about 35 athletes uh, who are former Wallabies. Um, current Reds players, um, former Lions, Paralympians, Olympians, and so on. Footballers, um, don't forget them, mate. Yeah, soccer, yes, absolutely, <laughs> footballs. Uh, so, um, yeah, Nick Montgomery played in the UK and he's in Australia now as well. Alongside those athletes, we've also got research assistants and psychologists who develop um, evidence-based programs and content uh, so that the stories are not just like guest speaking gigs one-off where um, you know, we stir up a lot of emotions and walk away. Um, they're programs, they're workshops with multiple touch points where people can be given these tools, learn these tools and skills to improve their well-being, their performance and their leadership. So I think that combination of, of the athletes and their unique stories backed with evidence-based programs make us, makes it a really engaging, relatable and long-lasting um, initiative. So the tools that you spoke about, can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Yep. And for the average Joe Blow at the same time mm. that isn't the elite sports star, what are some of the tools that you would probably go, look, this is what you need to work on? I know we've spoken about fitness, health. Is it yep. meditation? Is it eating right? Is it looking at your diet? Is it reaching out to friends? Is it putting down your phone? Yeah, yeah. So we like to keep it really simple as a start. 
um, for everybody to be able to understand, I guess, and, and relate to and feel like it's achievable by the, for them um, because a lot of the concepts uh, like practicing gratitude or, or mindfulness to get that um, positive frame of mind or to be able to switch off at night or, or stay calm when you're really anxious, be able to self-regulate, I guess. Some of those things might feel a bit silly or weird to everyday folk or um, out of their reach, like, oh, I can't concentrate for 10 seconds, let alone meditate for an hour. But it, it's not about that. We keep it really simple and say, hey, um, try these things that'll make you more positive, motivated, help you self-regulate through your breath, stay calm when you're overstressed and anxious, overwhelmed. Just try these things. It might feel weird at first. It's not going to make you an elite performer tomorrow. It's not going to make you happy necessarily tomorrow. But if you stick with it, you can train emotional skills, mental skills um, to make yourself more resilient, to build your emotional capacity and make you a better performer, uh, make you a better leader. So, um, yeah, it might be something, um, I guess, simple or not simple like gratitude and mindfulness, but then it might be activities to work on your connections with other people uh, as well um, to grow your, your confidence, your self-regard. Um, to grow your your vision and your self-efficacy, I guess, to improve your goal setting and that sort of thing. It might be improving your emotional literacy so you can communicate better and build those interpersonal skills and lead teams around you. So there's a lot of different emotional skills and mental skills that we train depending on who we're talking to and how deep we want to go. Yeah, there's one thing that we never do. You talked about gratitude just before. Mm. I released a recent blog on our website was, uh, do you actually know how much you've paid off your mortgage in the last 12 months? You would get this big debt, 400, 500, 600, whatever it may be. Yeah, you know, I challenge people to go, did you know you've just paid off 20,000 bucks a year on your home loan? The average person pays 9,800. Like, do you ever actually just pat yourself on the back and say, well yeah, done? Yeah, yeah. Do should you go out and buy yourself a nice meal? Look, you are human. You've got to live. Yeah. Why do we not do that? Mm. Like, why are you finding people aren't doing that, mate? Yeah. Well, I'm a huge advocate for gratitude because of its personal benefits like that I've received. And you know, stemming back to that story we, turned, we talked about earlier when I was a young football player, just so self-critical saying, oh, I played okay, but it wasn't good enough. It was never good enough like that. So um, being so self-critical made me not really appreciate, I guess, the good things that were happening in my life. And practicing gratitude is about that. It's about acknowledging those good things we got in our life. And that could be as small as um, a ripper of a coffee the barista made this morning, an easy commute to work. Uh, it could be nice, more intimate, like um, a compliment an employee gave you or um, your wife said you look nice when you're coming in to film the podcast today. She did, uh, mate. It could, <laughs> uh, or it could be huge. Alina, why are you not telling me that? <laughs> What's your wife's name? Sonia. Sonia, hopefully she told you as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's a nice shirt, by the way. <laughs> she bought this for me, actually. So, um, and she complimented on me. For people morning. that can't see it, it's pink. <laughs> and he's about six foot, so I'm not going to give him any shit. <laughs> uh, oh, it could be a huge thing you're grateful for, a job promotion, uh, a fantastic relationship you're in. You bought your first first home. So that's what gratitude's about, where it's big or small. It's about recognizing it, verbalizing it, writing it down. Because sometimes when you're thinking in the head, it doesn't really reinforce it very well. So talk about it to your friends and your family, write it down. And over time, we'll stop focusing on those negative things, the things we're not good at or we wish we had. And over time, as we practice gratitude, it retrains us to, to scan the world and pick up on the good things. And, and it, you definitely are in a happier, more positive state of mind. Mate, Females. Yeah. <laughs> so you, like you're seeing it with the AFL, soccer, cricket, netball. <clears throat> Are you seeing uh, a lot of mental health with females more so now? 
Yeah, there's been such a drive for men's mental health over the last, I don't know, decade that you'd swear that men are the only people that have ups and downs. Mm. Uh, so whilst I think it's fantastic and important to get men talking and, and we do do things like that, uh, it's important to acknowledge that women have huge amounts of mental health difficulties over time. And you can back that up with stats, absolutely. Women report more mental health difficulties, but they don't talk about it. And the suicide rate is lower as well. Men don't report as many difficulties, but definitely don't talk about it. And as a result, potentially, the the suicide rate is higher, let alone other social issues that relate to mental health. So um, we know women uh, definitely have struggles. Uh, We know they talk about it more, which is fantastic. But I love watching the progress I guess we're making with around equality for women at the moment, seeing all the women's sport, whether it's rugby league or cricket or AFL, seeing women progress through the workplace as well. But I also want to equip them with those skills and tools that they need to be confident in themselves uh, and to perform their best as well because stereotypically a female in the workplace um, or you know, an Indigenous person in the workplace, um, they might if we were doing an uh, EQ assessment on there, you're scoring their emotional skills, they might score really low on self-regard and self-actualization because typically or traditionally women in sport um, as leaders, it didn't exist. And, and women in the workplace as leaders, it didn't exist. So they might feel a bit out of place or not very confident in what they can do, how they can add value. It's exciting to see what's happening, but we need to give them the tools as well. Are you finding that, uh, say, elite sport young females, because they're just as talented in their field, uh, trying to keep up with the males? Yeah, so and that's probably ties into your patient's point earlier that um, we have broken enormous ground, but male sport, generally speaking, you know, gets more viewers on TV, yeah. more bums on seats in stadiums and, and drives commercial value there. So Not the, beach volleyball, though. That's <laughs> true, that's true. Maybe the men should wear the, the women's outfits. <laughs> no, and mate, no, no, no. Yeah. But that's okay, each their own, but yeah. maybe they should. But it is good to see, and and uh, as I said, I, I, yeah, if we can give them support mm. with those emotional skills, because the flip side as well can be, you know, men in the workplace traditionally have been leaders, and uh, over time they've become you know ultra assertive in the workplace, um, and they think that's a good thing, and they're the alpha male barking orders, but they might score really low on problem solving or empathy, and they're just ranting at work rather than being an effective leader. I could talk to you for. All day, actually, because I, I find your story and I find you really engaging. For anyone that's fortunate enough to meet you, we're in the same building at work, and mate, you you gave me a, you know your time and you really kind of focused yep. on giving me that. So, yep. if anyone's uh, ever comes across Dave, he's a wonderful human Thank and you. a good character, and I'm not he's not paying me to say that by the <laughs> way. Um, and uh, mate, leadership leadership is changing so much, and mm. you've been under some great leaders like Brad Fittler, yep. Wayne Bennett. Yep. Who was the Raiders? Uh, Dave Fern and Ricky Stewart down the Raiders. So leadership has changed so much, right? Yeah. And even in the workforce, you know, like we're seeing it with COVID, you have to adapt and change really quickly. Mm. What were some of the attributes that you had with leaders that you could actually go, I've now adapted that as my own person, as a CEO of your own mm. organisation? I think a testament to a good leader is uh, the longevity of their leadership because as we've talked about today, it's, the world's changed enormously over the years and, and thinking specifically about uh, rugby league. You know, when I was a young fellow, 18, uh, Ricky Stewart was a coach at the uh, Roosters, actually, so 2002. And um, by the time I progressed through to the Raiders, where he's my coach again, I was, I was 32, 33, about to finish up. 
there was a new wave of young people coming through who were connected to social media, living their lives um, online and, and used to that sort of limelight and not talking to people face-to-face and shaking hands and, and doing all those sort of interpersonal skills that we all did as young people. And it'd be easy just to write all those people off, but they're a next generation of football players as well. So we need to uh, upskill them to be a part of the team and, and build those you know, interpersonal skills or whatever. But so Ricky as a coach, he's a bit of a colorful character that gets picked on a bit and <laughs> had his downsides, of course. But what a testament to him as a leader that he could coach the men, I guess, in the early 2000s to the new version of men in 2021. They're different people, good or bad. And um, as a leader to be able to evolve and adapt your skills, your relatability, your motivational skills, that's, I think, a real testament to leadership, isn't Cause, it? Because these guys couldn't show you how to run, how to barge through people. Mm. They would have kind of looked at your strengths and kind of gone trying to hone in on that, but yeah. also at the same time look at your weaknesses and talk to you about them yep. and try to get that obviously yeah. repertoire up a little bit in certain areas. Did you find that, like some of them? Yeah, and I, it was never about one person as a leader or one person as a coach. It was always the team of coaches or the, the leadership team within a football team. Uh, it was never about one single authority. And and the message or the reason behind that is having complementary skills to each other. So you might have an assistant coach who's very technical and can pull apart the game to explain things well. And then you might have a head coach who's great with managing players and tapping into their motivation and making sure they're taking care of themselves off the field and, and that sort of thing. And then you might have another assistant coach who's good at having a laugh with the boys and um, where appropriate, you know, revs them up. Um, that might be like at the Broncos and Alfie Langer, lightens the mood and makes sure everyone's enjoying their football. Wayne Bennett is that man, man manager. Uh, and one of their assistant coaches might be the technical person. So in the workplace, it's the exact same thing. Um, a, a CEO has a leadership team around him. And it's important for that CEO to know, look, it's not about me in this organization. It's about the people I put around me and, and even people below that, if they're doing their job, everyone's accountable, everyone's supported to perform in this environment, then that's what probably leadership is um, more broadly. Talking about communication, we've spoken about communication, we've spoken about gratitude, patience. It's probably the three key things that I've, it's really resonated through the conversation I've had with you. Couple of final questions, mate. Dave is a 37-year-old business owner. You've come across the 22-year-old Dave Shillington. What are some of the things you'd either slap him, metaphorically, <laughs> or you'd give him a little bit of an awakening and go, mate, this is what's coming? What would you say to a young David? Uh, I think what we talked about earlier, looking at the big picture, having a plan, uh, being confident in that plan, having the right support services around you, whether that's a coach, a financial advisor, or, or your friends, um, accessing that support, I guess, and then sticking to that plan so that you can avoid some of the setbacks and or you can bounce back quicker from those setbacks. Uh, and yeah, having just having a really long-term view on it rather than living month to month or week to week or anything like that. Uh, because you, know, you sitting here in this chair today and me as well, the positions we have in life, um, the good parts and the bad parts, that's an accumulation or a collection of all these tiny little choices we've made, hundreds of millions of them, probably billions. Do I eat this food? Do I say hello to this person? Um, what time do I wake up in the morning? Um, and without being stressing over every decision you make, building good habits, good routines based on your values or your goals, they just accumulate over time and, and add up to having a good week, a good month, year, decade, and so on. So I think, um, yeah, having a good long-term view, 
um, accessing the right support. There's plenty of good support out there, friends, professional support, uh, and then building those habits and routines. That's, I think, the key. If I was a young person, but even now too, like uh, I'd like to say I'm only 37, so I've got a lot I want to achieve in this next phase of my career being a business owner. So whether you're 20, 40, or 60 starting retirement, get a plan, um, set some goals, get some support. Don't stress about it all, but just you know, build those good habits and routines. Sounds like as well the message that we are getting across, it's about the reset button. Yeah, oh, everyone's it's got about a chance. Every, yeah, it's yeah. about every six to seven months, that yeah. reset, because we are creatures of habit. Yeah. Where you can either get in the car right now, get to work and go, how did I get there? Yeah, well, that's what we talked about being proactive because we're all different phases in life and we, we might be happy, successful, however you want to judge the phase you're in, I guess, or, or score it. Um, and we all have a chance to change that too, to adjust our trajectory or to get on trajectory towards where we want to be. Some of the athletes we have working with us, they haven't made all the right decisions in life by any stretch of the imagination. Some of them made some shocking decisions. But the story is how they've reinvented themselves or how they've, rec- how they've recovered from that, how they've ditched some of the negative toxic things in their life and put in place really positive actions and where they are now and where they are heading forward. So it's not about always doing the right thing or having had done the right thing. It's about you know, what, you, what you can do today, what you can learn from the past and how that's going to affect you moving forward. Not your religion. A uh, couple of last sport questions yes. for the people out there because I know they'll want to ask. They'll be like, mate, you spoke about finance a lot. That's what we're here for. Who was the team you supported as growing up? Actually, I was a young Canberra Raiders fan. So, uh, And hilariously, Dave Ferner was one of my favourite players because when I was like 8, 10 years old, the Raiders were killing it all mm. the time. Fernsey was their goal-kicking second rower. And uh, so as a young fellow, I loved the Raiders. Then I eventually played for the Raiders and got coached by Dave Ferner. So um, so he was your idol as you were growing up? Yeah, so it's pretty funny how that works. <laughs> it's just a pure coincidence, really. And do your bro- did your brothers play rugby league? Yeah, they were fantastic young rugby league players. And um, when they probably hit about 20, 21, they chose their academic careers and work careers, um, which was a good choice. They're all, yeah. as I said, successful in their own rights. But yeah, um, hell of a footballer when, when they were younger. Um, sort of those freakish teenagers, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's impressive to watch. Was there any other code that you appreciated other than rugby league? Yeah, yeah. I um, I was a rugby union player too. Yeah. So when I finished uh, school, I probably had to make a decision between going to the Reds uh, and the Roosters, actually. Wow. And actually talking about finance, and, and we can talk about it now, in hindsight, 20 years later, but the opportunity to go to the Reds, they would have covered um, some of my uni and scholarship like that. You know, it might have been worth about $5,000. And going to the uh, the Roosters, they offered me a full adult salary. So, wow. um, it was a no-brainer. Yeah. So um, not that you make all decisions in life around money, but as a um, 17, 18-year-old to get an adult salary and play with a prestigious NRL club like that, it was a no-brainer. Your favourite teammate? Oh, Probably um, put you on the spot there. No, yeah. Um, I have a few good guys from, from Canberra that I hang out with. Um, I'm not sure if you remember the names, but big Tom Leroy Lars and... Um, Sean Fensom, Joe Picker, they're sort of um, good country boys who who like a beer and a barbie on the weekends and go surfing or fishing and those sorts of things. So we keep in contact um, uh, Fair bit. weekly or fortnightly or something like that between all of us and try to catch up as much as we can for the odd drink. So Biggest highlight? I think a year was a highlight, I guess, in 2010. Uh, that was just such a, such a blast. We... Uh, playing for the Maroons, we won 3-0, beat, beat the um, Blues. They didn't win a single game. Uh, we just dominated them. And by the time the third game came around, we got a bit cocky, actually. We were so confident. We just knew if we played pretty good, we were going to win. So no disrespect to the Blues, but we were just on fire. 
also that year, we had a really good year with the Raiders at my club. Uh, I got the Dally M Prop of the Year in the NRL and uh, the Raiders Player of the Year as well. So for personal achievement, but then also enjoyment, it was a fantastic year. When you were ever playing for Sway, were you ever thinking about playing for the rugby Wallabies? Uh, a couple of times later in my career, yeah, because I had mates like uh, Benny Moen who, who captained the Wallabies. Uh, they were playing and they went overseas to play as well and I really craved that um, that lifestyle overseas, mm. I think. Maybe it was the Canberra winters that was yeah. <laughs> giving me, me fantasise about that. Yeah. But uh, but just for the experience and the enjoyment of it, I'm not a, like a rugby league man, diehard through and through, hate hate rugby union or any other code. That's definitely not me. I think just play whatever sport you want to play. If you if you enjoy it, you're good at it, and uh, just play it. Do you like football? Yeah, yeah. I don't like it enough to call it football. I call it soccer. But <laughs> 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 but um, mate, I tell you what, I, I, I mean, I came from Scotland originally as a young boy, and growing up here in Queensland, obviously, if you played soccer, uh, sorry, football, or I call it football, everyone's like, no, mate, it's soccer. Yeah, you're like, yeah. it's actually not. It's played yeah. with your foot. Yeah, <laughs> but, I think uh, if you've been overseas, you probably appreciate uh, football uh, more for what it is, because. Um, we, we did a couple of kangaroo tours and, and stuff over in England and uh, we watched, this is way back in the day, we watched Man City play Man United at Old oh. Trafford with Beckham there and, and everyone else. Then we went and watched, um, who was the full, uh, goalkeeper? It was Schwarzer. Yeah. Yeah, we watched him him play for his team, excuse my lack of knowledge Fulham, there. Fulham, Chelsea. Yeah, yeah, Fulham. Did you get to meet any of them? No, no, but we went, we went to quite a few games and that is an experience. It's like a rock concert, equivalent to a rock concert or something, just... Atmosphere, passion, fanatics. So, any of the boys turn into football, big football fans after that? Oh, well, I played in the Kangaroos with um, Robbie Farrah, and he's a big he, Liverpool fan. Yeah, a huge, huge, yeah, Liverpool fan. So, he was always driving the attendance at games over there, getting tickets and wearing like full kit of Liverpool. Oh, God. And then other guys I played with, um, like Craig Fitzgibbon at the Roosters, he's an assistant coach there now. But when he played, he just loved watching the UK soccer and European yeah. soccer from an elite performance point of view, so sort of watching their habits and characteristics and just trying to take what he can from there to rugby league as well. So, yeah, a few of the boys were quite interested in it. Yeah, cool, mate. Oh, no, no, there's some phenomenal cash. I mean, like to Bex and these guys would seriously have to have some kind of guidance financially themselves, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, we talked about it earlier how much money you get paid in the NRL sometimes, but these guys overseas Betting get paid that, that weekly. I know. So, um, that's Which whole- is ludicrous at the same time, really, isn't it? I mean, Ronaldo, Messi, you know, mm. like, what would they do with it? I, I don't know. They wouldn't, they wouldn't go to an ATM, I know that much. <laughs> That's right. Mate, how does anyone get in touch with you if they want to, you know, get involved in your business? Yep. How yep. do we do that? Yeah, so our website is just one word, wellbeingcode.com.au. Uh, so you can check us out online there. I'm obviously on, on LinkedIn, so just uh, look me up there, David Shillington, and, and send me a message if you want. Uh, people do that all the time, and that, that's great. We'll get back to you as quick as we can and, and love to be um, – yeah, I'd love to work with you know, schools, sporting clubs, corporates. Um, they all face different challenges, whether it's well-being, performance or leadership. And, and um, I think we can provide some really worthwhile uh, solutions for that. Hey, David, thank you very much again. I yep. really, really appreciate it. I'm very fortunate again to have you on the show. Uh, mate, you're always welcome here. Thank you. Thank and, you. Uh, mate, thanks very much. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Cheers. bud. Thank you very much for listening. It's much appreciated. Jump onto our website, www.swbrokerage.com.au. 
you can find the podcast there. Have a look at some of the blogs and have a look at some of the fantastic team that we've got in the business. Thanks very much. Remember, your ego is not your amigo. Have a good day. God bless. Take care.